welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, February 12th, 2023. I'm your reader, Sharon Faldudo, and we turn to the front page of today's Gazette. Schools prepare to tighten budgets as aid ends by Grace King of the Gazette in Cedar Rapids. Truman Early Learning Center, a full-day preschool program with before and after school care, opened last fall in the Cedar Rapids Community School District with the help of short-term pandemic relief funding, which is set to expire in September 2024. After two years of the school being funded by federal relief dollars, the American Rescue Plan Elementary and Secondary School Emergency Relief, the district will have to resort to state funding, which currently funds preschool at half the usual per-pupil rate because preschoolers typically are in centers only part of the day. Carla Hogan, Cedar Rapids School's Executive Director of Business Services says the district is banking or saving state funds it is receiving for preschool this year and next to continue budgeting for full-day programming for the 24-25 school year. We keep trying to move it down the road and maybe the legislature will change and we'll get 1.0 funding for preschool, she said. Interim Superintendent Art Sadoff said advocating for preschool to be fully funded by the state will be a legislative priority for the district. Iowa's statewide voluntary preschool program provides funding for free half-day preschool to four-year-olds, which can be a barrier for working families who are unable to find child care before or afterward or transportation for their child, some educators say. Many Iowa schools are facing similar funding challenges as the expiration date for elementary and secondary school emergency relief approaches September 30, 2024. Some school districts are reporting their funding will run out as early as this summer, and as funds dwindle, school officials are having conversations about what they can afford. The Cedar Rapids School District received a total of $49.9 million in federal pandemic relief money since 2020 to help with recovery of learning and to fund mitigation efforts for COVID-19. At least 20% of the funds had to be spent on addressing learning loss due to the extended and repeated school closures and remote learning during the height of the pandemic. Almost $5 million was spent by the district on acceleration and innovation learning, which includes early childhood extension or preschool over three years, according to the district's website. This also included funding for the district's new magnet high school called City View Community, which is opening this fall. A portion of these funds helped the district create new positions to help with learning loss, which means 66 positions, just over 2% of the district's employees, will not continue in their current roles after this school year. Hogan said these employees were aware they were hired under two-year contracts and are being encouraged to apply for other open positions in the district. Many of these employees helped address equity gaps in reading and math, social-emotional learning competencies, improvements in instructional practices in the classroom, and tutoring students. Other programs and services funded with elementary and secondary school emergency relief aid include summer school, before and after school programming, tutoring services, curriculum reviews and implementation, professional learning for educators, and mental health services. A total of $5 million in the district was spent on technology, including getting devices into students' hands at the beginning of the pandemic so they could continue learning from home. Another $3 million was spent on personal protective equipment and facility maintenance to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. There are most definitely challenges that come with the pandemic relief funds expiring, Iowa City Schools Chief Financial Officer Leslie Finger said, including making budget adjustments over the next two years. The Iowa City Community School District received $41.5 million in ESSER allocations over three periods. The Iowa City District added more teaching staff to classrooms to decrease class size and help students learn during the pandemic. $1.5 
Officials are working to place them in vacant positions in the district. In the 2020-2021 academic year, Iowa City Schools lost more than 200 students, but it did not make staffing adjustments, Finger said. Enrollment started to bounce back the following year. We used the funds to pay teachers instead of making reductions, Finger said. Some of these positions now may be open because of resignations and retirements. While the district hires about 70 to 100 teachers each summer, Finger said there will be a pretty significant reduction in new hires this year because of this. We want to do this with no loss of jobs for district employees, Finger said. While the Iowa City District is delaying some new curriculum purchases, the College Community School District in Cedar Rapids used the federal funds to purchase new English language learner and math curriculum ahead of schedule. College Community also used the funds to add additional teaching staff to classrooms to decrease class sizes, purchase technology, add school nurses and custodial staff, upgrade heating and air conditioning systems to improve air circulation, and purchase personal protective equipment like masks and gloves. We've been planful to make sure we're not falling off a cliff, College Community Superintendent Doug Wheeler said. Christy Van Way, business manager for the Marion Independent District, said the majority of its funds were spent on adding air conditioning to the high school. Of the $3.3 million Marion Independent received in elementary and secondary school emergency relief, almost $2 million was used for the air conditioning project. The Marion Independent also updated its reading curriculum with the money. The Mount Vernon Community School District also spent the majority of its elementary and secondary school emergency relief funds on one-time costs, including technology, improving cleaning and safety measures, and temporary substitute teaching staff. Those worried about the elementary and secondary school emergency relief cliff are the districts who had money to spend on expanding staff and services in a way we could not, Mount Vernon Superintendent Greg Battenhorst said. Also from the front page, Far From Home, Turkish Iowans Feel Helpless, by Vanessa Miller of the Gazette, Iowa City. Even as the death toll rises, rescuers fight hypothermia, children find themselves orphaned, and food stores wane in southern Turkey and northwest Syria, University of Iowa Associate Professor Emine Bayman wishes she were home. I do feel helpless, sad, sometimes angry, said Bayman, who came to the UI from Turkey as an international graduate student in 2003 and in 2008 joined the faculty as an associate professor in biostatistics. Why is this happening? All the mixed feelings. And depressed, too. I've been so distracted since Sunday night when this happened. I've been checking my phone, reading the news, and not able to help. A 7.8 magnitude earthquake upended hundreds of thousands of lives in the dark of night there Monday, and the death toll by Saturday had surpassed 28,000 people. Originally from Mersin, about 3.5 hours from the quake's epicenter near Gaziantep, Bayman said her parents and her brother's family are safe, but that doesn't mean they're well, given the fear and trauma they've endured watching their countrymen and women suffer and wondering if they'll be next. My brother lives in an apartment, my parents live in a house, so my brother and his family came and stayed with my parents for three nights or so just in case something happens. It's much safer to be in a house, she said. They were very scared. Bayman learned of the earthquake before 8 p.m. Sunday, about 30 minutes after it occurred, about 4 a.m. Monday local time in Turkey, via a WhatsApp message group of Turkish friends living in Iowa. Given the early hour there, Bayman said she didn't immediately call her parents in case the quake hadn't woken them, but she did reach out via WhatsApp to cousins in Turkey. And they were all up, she said. They were like, it was too long. It was shaking. Even the kids, it was strong enough to wake them from their sleep. Bayman said she decided to call her parents, and they were up too. The geological slip that caused the historic tremor lasted about 20, about 75 seconds, according to the U.S. Geological Survey. 
meaning many across the affected region could have felt it for up to two minutes. Normal earthquakes are like 10 to 15 seconds, Bayman said. Many, like her family, are navigating aftershock fears following the protracted quake. People living in apartments are either in their car or some other place getting out of the houses because we know from previous earthquakes that it's so dangerous to be inside, she said. It's a trauma that you don't want to live in again. Hundreds of thousands of survivors were left homeless in the dead of winter, with temperatures ranging from 20s to mid-40s. Bayman said she was in Turkey in 1999 when a similar 7.6 magnitude quake shook the Koseli province and killed upward of 18,000 people, although she wasn't near the epicenter. Noting the rise of social media and global connectivity has been helpful this time around in alerting rescuers of trapped survivors and spreading the word of missing or found community members, Bayman said it has also amplified fears from those across the region or far from it, like her. Trying to maybe get some donations is all I can do from here, she said. Bayman isn't alone in her eagerness to help, with Iowa's public universities reaching out to their dozens of international students and scholars from Turkey or Syria. Like many of you, we were shocked and saddened when we heard about the devastating earthquakes that hit parts of Turkey and Syria, UI international students and scholars officials wrote in an email to those affected last week. We want you to know that if any of you are struggling with your thoughts or emotions, Seeing the news from back home, you were always welcome to visit our office just to find someone to talk to. The UI has 29 students and six international scholars from Turkey, along with five students and one scholar from Syria, according to UI spokesman Steve Schmadike. Iowa State University has 33 students from Turkey and two from Syria. ISU's International Students and Scholars Office and Dean of Students Office are providing outreach to students from these countries to make sure they have the support and resources they need, according to ISU spokeswoman Angie Hunt. Bayman worries the global relief efforts will fade long before the needs abate for Turkey and for war-torn Syria and its millions of refugees. This is not something that can be cleaned in days, Bayman said. It's going to take months and years. And also from the front page, at Martial Arts Gym, It's a Matter of Life and Death, by Elijah Decius of the Gazette, Iowa City. Growing up in the Humboldt Park neighborhood of Chicago, Danny Arroyo knew he had to get out as he watched friends get mugged, shot, stabbed, and killed in an area rife with gang violence. He cried himself to sleep trying to figure out how to afford college. With overworked parents, he forged signatures on permission slips to play sports after school and stay out of trouble. Before long, he figured out sports, first boxing, then baseball, were his ticket out. In 2004, he earned enough scholarships to afford Coe College in Cedar Rapids. Where I come from, you're not supposed to go to college, said Arroyo, now 36. All of my friends back home are in jail or dead. But after growing up in an all-black and Hispanic high school, the Puerto Rican's postgraduate education in Iowa was more of a shock than a welcome change. In his first week living at the dorms, nobody wanted to room with him as he got called every slur in the book. As the only minority in his fraternity and the only Latino on his baseball team, racially charged treatment lurked at every corner. You're going to play ball in someone's backyard. You will be tolerated, but you won't be accepted, he recalled his father telling him, and is something that's reigned true my entire time here, even now to an extent. With an anger that carried through college, he was on academic probation virtually every semester. Physical responses to slurs were something he had to learn how to suppress as he navigated a predominantly white world. By 2008, he graduated with a triple major and assimilated to conventional success by climbing the ladder at a nonprofit and getting married. But after two years of a desk job where he wore a suit, the athlete gained 60 pounds and his mental health declined. A gym opening up across the street with boxing classes sparked the ignition he needed to enjoy life again. 
Before long, he was competing, coaching students in martial arts, and working jobs at Whirlpool and Quaker Oats, where he could work with his hands. For a while, he thought he could have it all. He worked 60-hour weeks, competed as a champion in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, taught students, and raised his first son on two to three hours of sleep every night, redlining for a decade. That's the only thing I saw growing up, Arroyo said. You work your fingers to the bone and then some. In November 2021, he collapsed while getting lunch. Rushed to the hospital with a heart rate of 255 beats a minute, his heart was surgically ablated to correct the arrhythmia. Last year, he was diagnosed with arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, or ARVC, a rare genetic condition that can cause sudden death. The median life expectancy with ARVC is 41 years. When you get a higher heart rate, your heart expands. I'm missing that gene, so my heart is separating, causing scar tissue around my heart, he explained. This is what's going to kill me. Four heart surgeries later, he now has a defibrillator in his chest that can help him live longer. But living longer also means stopping strenuous activities that make the disease progress, switching from jiu-jitsu choke moves like the guillotine to nothing more than croquet, darts, or brisk walks. After being unable to continue his line job at Quaker Oats last July due to health risks and being unable to provide for his family, Arroyo had to choose between doing what he lived for and doing what would keep him alive. I lost who I was. I almost lost my mind, he called. I called the University of Iowa scream crying for mental health. The same strenuous sports that went against doctor's orders were what helped Arroyo find himself again. But this time, it's helping others fall in love with the sport. With fees less than half of other gyms in the area, the coach keeps Arroyo Grappling Academy in Iowa City accessible to everyone, particularly people of color and those who can't afford other gyms or don't feel comfortable in them. If they can't attend in person, he uploads training videos to the website for free, dismantling a form of gatekeeping he said is prevalent in the martial arts training community. I just want to try to make people fall in love with martial arts like I fell in love with it because it changed my life, Arroyo said. I wish I had someone that cared about me when I was that age. Not only a coach who wanted me to win the game, but wanted me to excel as a man and a citizen of the community. Whether he's giving rides to students before and after class, reaching into his own pocket to help them afford classes and competitions, bailing students out of jail, or helping young adults struggling with homelessness, the coach has gone beyond the job title. Arroyo does it all without putting on airs because it's a calling, not a nine-to-five. Yes, he's their coach, but at the same time, he doesn't see himself as being a master, said George Chamberlain, a 25-year-old boxing coach who has known Arroyo for 10 years and worked alongside him in the same gym for about five. Danny has found that he's a form of service, a way to give back. Reaching about 100 students per year, Arroyo teaches the mechanics of martial arts that students have used to defend themselves in dangerous situations. For people of color, he's building a space to help them navigate the world in a way that he had to figure out on his own. Perhaps one of the greatest ironies is that in teaching his kids how to fight others with techniques that can kill, he's giving them the confidence to know how to de-escalate and avoid violence whenever possible. It means they can survive here in this type of environment, he said, instead of fighting in school, fighting on the streets, or getting arrested when they react to the same slurs he was called. Nearly 20 years after he arrived, Arroyo stays in Iowa because he knows it doesn't have to be like that. He wants others to realize Iowa can be their home, too. In the Iowa Today section, the Week in Iowa, a recap of news from across the state. Under the heading In the News, Reynolds signs 3% school funding. Funding for Iowa's K-12 public schools will increase by around $106.8 million under a law Governor Kim Reynolds signed last week, more than she initially requested, but less than schools said they needed. That amounts to a 3% increase over last year, bringing total school funding to $3.7 billion. 
The per pupil cost for each student will be $7,635. The measure passed both the House and Senate with mostly Republican support. Democrats argued the funding was not enough to keep up with the rate of inflation and prevent budget cuts. GOP proposal would loosen child labor laws. An Iowa bill would loosen child labor laws in a bid to improve workforce issues in the state. The bill, which cleared its first hurdle last week, would open more jobs to 14-year-olds, such as working in freezers and meat lockers and loading and unloading vehicles. It also would allow 14- to 17-year-olds to seek waivers to work in more labor-intensive industries like manufacturing and mining. National Dems confirm early primary calendar. National Democrats drove another nail in the Iowa caucus's coffin last weekend, approving changes to their 2024 primary calendar that stripped the state party of its first-in-the-nation status. The Democratic National Committee approved the calendar passed by the Rules Committee in December, giving early waivers to South Carolina, New Hampshire, Nevada, Georgia, and Michigan. Medical Malpractice Bill Awaiting Reynolds Signature Cash awards for non-economic damages from medical malpractice suits would be capped at $2 million for hospitals and $1 million for doctors under a bill that is close to becoming law. The measure passed both the Iowa House and Senate last week, and Governor Kim Reynolds is expected to sign it in the coming week. Supporters of the caps, which included health care providers, said they were needed to attract doctors to the state, keep medical centers financially stable, and keep insurance rates competitive in the state. Opponents argued the measure limits the ability of families and victims to seek justice and said large medical malpractice verdicts are not a major problem in Iowa. Regent canceled health care union negotiations. The University of Iowa's governing body has canceled upcoming negotiations with the union representing thousands of health care workers at University of Iowa Healthcare. The union accused the Board of Regents of violating Iowa laws around public employee unions after the negotiations were canceled. Lawmakers call for strict abortion ban. Two lawmakers called for a Life at Conception Act banning all abortions during an anti-abortion rally at the Iowa Capitol last week. Luanna Stoltenberg, a Republican from Davenport, said she would introduce the measure in the near future. Republican leaders have said they would not consider new abortion restrictions until the state Supreme Court decides on a 2018 law banning abortions at six weeks. Under the heading Odds and Ends, E-Verify Mandate Advances, Iowa employers would be required to check the federal E-Verify system to see if applicants are eligible to work in the U.S. under a bill advanced in the Iowa House last week. The Senate has passed the bill in previous years, but it has never cleared the House, and lawmakers expressed skepticism that it will advance further this year. Restitution rules could change. Judges would be able to consider offenses committed by a victim of violent crime against the offender before requiring the offender to pay restitution under a bill being considered in the legislature. The legislation was inspired by the 2022 case of a Des Moines woman and sex trafficking victim who killed the man who she had said had repeatedly raped her. Under the heading, they said, Public school funding has not kept up with a rising cost of inflation for 12 of the last 13 years. Inflation, coupled with fixed fixed costs, mean that no matter the ebb and flow of a student population, our schools need more funding to provide a robust and healthy student environment. Mike Baranek, Iowa State Education Association President on School Funding. And, this results in a $1.19 billion increase in K-12 education funding since 2012. This investment represents our commitment to an excellent education system for all Iowans. Republican Governor Kim Reynolds on School Funding. Under the heading Water Cooler, 2024 Watch, 
As the 2024 Republican caucuses loom, former Ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley will be visiting Iowa this month, according to national reports, as she plans to announce a run for president. Former Vice President Mike Pence, who also is laying the groundwork for a presidential run, will be visiting Cedar Rapids this week after a Pence-connected group announced an ad buy in Iowa. COVID cases back up. Iowa's new COVID-19 cases were up in the week ending Wednesday for the first time in a month. The state reported 1,517 new cases, up from 1,495 the week before. There were 122 Iowans hospitalized with the virus, compared to 135 last week. Turning to the Insight page, Althea Cole writes, Should Iowa replace presidential caucuses with a primary system? On a Saturday earlier this month, National Democrats finally ratified their plans to end Democrats' right to go first in the presidential nominating order. What a sad moment for Iowa politics. Surprisingly, though, not everyone is disappointed. Some have been calling for years to do away with the Iowa caucuses, citing counting debacles of Iowa Republicans in 2012 and Iowa Democrats in 2020. Some opponents of our charming caucus system see the removal of Iowa Democrats' first-in-the-nation spot as a step toward replacing it with a simpler primary election. Would a presidential primary be preferable to Iowa voters? Let's discuss. If Iowa voters want to hold a presidential primary in lieu of a caucus, the first question they should consider is when that primary should be held. Many voters know that Iowa already has a primary election for every partisan race, except the presidential one. Voters who didn't know that ought not to opine quite so vociferously about the electoral system in the state of Iowa, but that's just my opinion. Primary elections in Iowa always occur on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in June of a general election year. To qualify for the primary ballot, each candidate must file a petition containing the requisite number of signatures from eligible electors. For state and federal candidates, petitions must be received by the Iowa Secretary of State's office no later than 5 p.m. on the 81st day before a primary. That day falls in mid-March. Candidacy-wise, a lot can happen between that March filing deadline and the June primary date. In March, more than one candidate will likely still be vying for the presidential nomination, requiring an organizational effort to gather enough signatures to qualify for the primary ballot. But by the time voters actually cast those ballots in June, it's likely that a presumptive nominee will have been determined, either by a candidate securing enough delegates to the national convention, or by becoming the last one standing after all other serious campaigns suspend operations. That occurs often enough to consider how it would affect a June presidential primary in Iowa. In 2012, Mitt Romney clinched the requisite number of national GOP delegates during the last week of May, rendering a would-be June primary vote more or less moot. Joe Biden clinched the 2020 Democratic nomination late in the first week of June, but he'd already been informally considered the nominee since April, when his final opponent, Bernie Sanders, suspended his campaign. Is suspending a campaign the same thing as formally withdrawing from a ballot? Not in Iowa. A campaign may suspend operations at any time, but save for a five-day window after the original filing deadline, a candidate's name can't just be yanked off the ballot. It is likely that a June presidential primary ballot would contain names of candidates who have long since suspended campaigning. If only one active candidate remained, the question would likely seem redundant to most voters. Now what if we had a primary but an earlier date? A change in state law would be needed to accomplish one of two things, move the existing primary to a sooner date, we're at a second earlier presidential primary. Either would be unwise. Moving up the June primary could force elections commissioners to start primary election preparations before concluding operations for city and school board elections held the previous fall, complicating their ability to effectively manage either. 
It would also mean a shorter time frame for parties to recruit general election candidates and a longer and more expensive general election campaign. Adding a separate presidential primary election would keep the time frame for other candidates in balance, but would only compound workload issues for county election staffs. It would also cost a lot of money. State law dictates a minimum number of polling places staffed with paid election officials. It also requires a 20-day early voting period, during which some elections departments must hire extra staff. A separate primary, funded by the taxpayer, would be a huge waste. Speaking of taxpayer funding, proponents of an Iowa presidential primary should consider who would pay for the presidential selection process in Iowa. A presidential caucus has always been a function of party business. Every facet of a primary election, however, is a function of state law. Political parties have no say in the process. Parties only get to step in and choose their nominees for the general election ballot in cases where no one files to run for a particular office. Even then, they must wait until the primary has completed its legally prescribed process before they proceed with nominating a candidate by convention organized and paid for by the party. Primary elections in Iowa have a single purpose. Voters specifically determine who will appear on the general election ballot in November. The presidential preference vote, whether done using a caucus or primary system, does not do that. If it did, Iowa's general election ballots would have listed Ted Cruz as the GOP nominee in 2016 and Bernie Sanders as the Democratic nominee in 2020. The explicit intent of the presidential preference vote is to rate support for each candidate for the purpose of awarding delegates at each party's national convention where the actual nomination will take place. As a function of party business, it doesn't seem right that taxpayers, especially those with no party affiliation, should foot the bill for a presidential primary for the sake of using a simpler process than a caucus. And Todd Dorman writes in his column, 24-Hour Dorman, Iowa lawmakers should listen to kids like Danny and Weaver. We've heard plenty from Republican politicians assailing Linda Marr's support for transgender students and pursuing legislation to make them illegal. Now it's time to hear from Danny and Weaver. Danny Callis and Weaver, who goes by her last name, are juniors at Linmar. They're both involved in orchestra. Danny also is in band, marching band, jazz band, choir, and show choir. Weaver is competing in speech in the storytelling category. They're both involved in Spectrum, the high school's LGBTQ organization. Danny is in the Social Justice Club, and Weaver is in Dungeons and Dragons. They're bright, friendly kids. Danny is transgender, and Weaver is asexual and part of the LGBTQ community. They're each on a journey of learning about themselves and where they fit in. And where Republicans see a parent's right horror story, they see a supportive school district that provides them with a safe space as they make that journey. The teachers are, for the most part, supportive, and most teachers at the beginning of either the year or the semester will ask if you prefer to go by a different name than what is in the system, Danny said during an interview at a local coffee shop. Yeah, my geometry teacher actually asked me to stay after class to ask me a question, and she wants to double-check my pronouns, Weaver said. And having teachers be willing to support you is a big step because a lot of teachers, from what I've heard from other places, will go out of their way to ignore students' preferred names and pronouns. So just knowing that teachers are doing whatever they can to support you, it just makes it feel like you have a good support system in school, Danny said. Danny and Weaver have been watching the Iowa legislature as it considers anti-LGBTQ bills this session. One bill under consideration in the House would prohibit school districts, such as Linmar, from offering gender support plans to students without parental permission. It would also require teachers and school staff to report kids who are questioning their gender to parents. Linmar's policy currently allows students to ask for gender supports without informing their parents. It would limit trust between students and teachers because a lot of students will go to teachers and talk about what they're experiencing, Danny said, 
But if they go to a teacher and talk about, you know, possibly being trans, they would have to know that teacher could be obligated to tell their parents that. And if they're going to a teacher instead of their parents in the first place, there's probably a reason. So that would kind of break that trust. It will just tear apart a bunch of people because you're pretty much forcing people to do something they don't feel ready to do yet. And that could put a lot of people at risk of being on the streets, said Weaver, who also points to a higher suicide rate among transgender youth. As Danny came out to their family, they received unconditional love and support. Weaver told her mom, but has had to be less open in her devoutly Catholic extended family. When I told my... When I told, it was mainly my mom that I told, like we were in the car. She was like talking about grandchildren or something, and I just said, yeah, you're going to get none of that from me. I'm ace, Weaver said, using the abbreviation for asexual. And she asked a few questions. I explained, pretty simple. But Danny and Weaver said they know other kids who have had a far more difficult time coming out to family. Danny said lawmakers don't seem to realize how important it is for those kids to have a safe space to be themselves at school without the stress of hiding who they are. I would say that if they're so concerned about parents not being involved, then maybe they should look in the mirror and look at why the kids don't want to tell them these things, Danny said. And that if they can't see why their children wouldn't want to tell them these things about themselves, then they should try to think about the way they make their kids feel. Because if their kid can't feel safe telling them who they are, then it makes sense that their kid would want to keep that a secret. Weaver and Danny are worried passage of legislation targeting Linmar's policy will wipe away all the progress that's been made in making students feel accepted and supported at school. I think their goal is just to try to erase LGBTQ people, just because they don't think it's normal, so they don't want to have to see it, Danny said. They're just pretty much scared and confused. They don't understand what the LGBTQ community feels, Weaver said. It's kind of like two steps forward, one step back, Danny said. More like two steps forward, ten steps back, Weaver said. Weaver and Danny are also concerned about other bills that would prohibit teaching LGBTQ subject matter in lower grades, and they oppose removing books from curriculum and libraries that frankly address LGBTQ topics. When you take away both teachers and books from kids, that only leaves the internet as a source, and the internet is riddled with opinions, said Danny, not to mention falsehoods, Weaver said. After high school, Weaver would like to go into voice acting, or maybe open an LGBTQ-friendly coffee shop to, to provide another safe space for her community. She doesn't see herself staying in Iowa, although the current political climate isn't a factor. Danny wants to be a civil rights lawyer in New York City, and for them, the current push to curtail LGBTQ rights is a big factor. For me, it definitely relates to the cultural climate and a lot with what's going on with the legislature right now, Danny said. There have just been so many anti-trans and anti-queer bills lately, and just in the last few years alone. And there's a lot of people, not necessarily in this part of Iowa, but just throughout Iowa in general, that allows bills like that to be passed, and it allows people like Kim Reynolds to stay in office. I think you needed a hug, Weaver said, after leaning over and putting a supportive arm around her friend. Community Letters today, and today's editorial cartoon from Joe Heller of Green Bay man and woman walking their dog down the street. The man is looking at his phone and it says, he says, the balloon popped, no more spying. She looking around at the world says, I hate to burst your bubble. And they are surrounded by an airplane, drones in the sky, satellites, someone taking a picture of them with his phone, traffic light cameras, someone in a car with a car camera and a car that is marked Google Maps. The first letter today is from Robert Nodjox of Marion, Republicans desire anti-intellectual agenda. I could see it on the horizon with the push by Governor Kim Reynolds and her Republican assenters for a school vouchers law. Here comes the control of how and what teachers can say or teach to avoid so-called indoctrination. The only indoctrination I see is that of a conservative, white-only, anti-intellectual agenda that the Republicans desire. 
Now the governor is floating a book ban that says if one school bans a book, all schools in the state must ban it. That idea certainly ignores the fact that Iowans are not homogenous and that different areas of the state, city and rural, for example, are not the same in outlook or needs. Though the Republicans rule, nearly half the state did not vote for them. So these proposals make a large portion of the state outsiders. Certainly, the universities and libraries are next, I fear. Robert Najux of Marion. Next, Anita Baumgars of Orange City writes, Reject liability limits for semi-trucks. 49 years ago, I was in a near-fatal semi-truck car accident just outside Orange City. The semi crossed into my lane and hit my car head-on, twisting my Chevy Vega under the trailer and crushing the car into my entire body. The accident now is classified as a truck underride accident. Still an Iowa resident, I am one of the oldest known survivors, according to www.stopunderrides.org. Documentation, which has been difficult to acquire due to reporting inconsistencies, shows that thousands of people are killed that same way every year since. The statistics make no mention of the number of badly injured and mentally affected victims. State legislators now want to limit liability of trucking agencies to $1 million per incident. That amount is ludicrous. I have lived my life permanently handicapped and struggled to recuperate from 20 surgeries, mostly due to the accident. I am aware that trucks move the nation, but a partial solution does exist to the litigious situation. If the truck was fitted with approved, fortified side guards, as is the EU mandate, the injury magnitude is greatly reduced. Read the findings. Iowa, make a good law by examining each accident independently. Mandate semi-trailer fortified side guards to reduce the magnitude of injuries. Do not penalize your residents who innocently get their bodies smashed, mangled, and forever negatively changed in a semi-truck car accident. Be wise. Anita Baumgars of Orange City. Herman Lentz of Sumner writes, Large trucks do more damage in a crash. There's a bill in the Iowa legislature to limit the amount of damages at $1 million when a large truck is to blame for a fatal crash, even if there are multiple fatalities. This gives favoritism to big trucking. Lawmakers know where their election funding comes from. I'd have to be an idiot to believe an 80,000-pound vehicle won't do more damage in a crash than a 3,000-pound one. Iowa always makes the dirty top five states in the U.S. for having an above-average number of fatal crashes where large trucks are involved. Do a Google search for large trucks involved in fatal crashes by state. In 2020, Iowa did 14.3%, while the national average was 8.9%. There has not been an increase in the numbers of commercial vehicle enforcement personnel to keep up with the exploded number of big rigs that have come on in recent years. Herman Lentz of Sumner. Next, Jay Stolba of Cedar Rapids writes, Don't negotiate with debt ceiling. It is necessary to raise the debt ceiling to pay existing obligations of our government. The U.S. House majority has decided to hold the United States economy hostage by refusing to raise the debt ceiling. If it is not raised before default, it would have a devastating effect not only on the United States economy, but the world economy. This is not something to be taken lightly. The House majority is using the debt ceiling as a tool to negotiate without any plan for the future other than to cut spending. If the majority doesn't get their way, they say they're willing to ruin the U.S. and world economies. This is the behavior of a child who would rather break something than share it. It would hurt virtually everyone, causing interest rates to skyrocket and imports to cease. It would cause a domino effect throughout the world. The solution is relatively simple. Raise the debt ceiling, then come up with a realistic and acceptable plan to reduce spending. Jay Stolba of Cedar Rapids. In the final letter from Sarah Williams of Marion, removing books, a form of indoctrination. On Saturday, February 4th, the article Reynolds, if one school removes a book, all schools should, said that Kim Reynolds' reasoning is to restore sanity to make sure our schools are a place of learning and not indoctrination. 
How is removing books not indoctrination in and of itself? I urge all parents and guardians to read what your students are reading, the whole book. This is your opportunity to discuss your beliefs with your children. Allow them to ask questions. Let them be curious. Explain your values in open and honest language, not just, this is bad, this is good. Where is the harm in that? Sarah Williams, Marion. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, February 12th, 2023. I am your reader, Sharon Faldudo, on the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. And looking at today's obituaries, Ronald J. Thibodeau, age 75, of Cedar Rapids, died Friday, February 10th, Papage Cuba Funeral Service of Cedar Rapids Handling Arrangements. James William Grimm, age 94, of Cedar Rapids, passed away Wednesday, February 8th, at Prairie Hills Assisted Living at Independence. Visitation will be from 10 to 11 a.m. Monday, February 13th, at Brosh Chapel in the Ava Center, located at 2121 Bowling Street Southwest in Cedar Rapids. Celebration of Life service will be 11 a.m. Monday, February 13th, at Brosh Chapel. Burial will follow in Czech National Cemetery. Jim loves seeing his family, fishing, crafting with his wife, listening to old-time Western music, and watching Westerns. Vlasta Hulshizer, who was born in Fairfax on July 27, 1920, passed on February 8, 2023, at the North Book Manor with her family by her side at the age of 103. She worked at Killian's department store as a young girl and worked several years as a bookbinder at Caleric Bookbinding Company. She spent many loving years caring for her family farm. A graveside service will be held at 1 p.m. Monday, February 13th at the Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery Chapel Garden with the certified celebrant Randy Walton officiating. A picnic in her honor will be held this summer. A celebration of life for Mark Angerer, hosted by Don Thomas Persman and Ann Angerer, will be held Sunday, March 5th, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. at American Legion, Post 298, 625 31st Street in Marion. Mark was an IBEW Union Electrician Journeyman and LaSalle High 72 graduate. Lunch, red velvet cake, and Miller Lite will be provided. Edward Hopkins Healy, known as Ted, age 98, passed on January 25th, 2023. Ted enlisted in the U.S. Navy and served for three years in World War II, primarily as an aircraft mechanic. Ted was heavily involved with advancing the profession of architecture in Iowa and the nation. He was honored and elevated as a National Fellow of the AIA in 1979, the American Institute of Architects. Ted served as President of the Iowa Architectural Registration Board and as Director on the National Council of Architectural Registration Boards, where he chaired the Professional Conduct Committee, which wrote the Code of Conduct for Licensed Architects. Ted was appointed by the Iowa governor to serve on the State Library Commission, which he chaired for two years, and was elected to represent Iowa at the White House Conference on Library Informational Services for two years. In 1996, Ted was recognized for his distinguished achievements in architecture when awarded the Medal of Honor by Iowa AIA. Memorial service at 1.30 p.m. Saturday, February 18th at First Presbyterian Church in Cedar Rapids. Reception following at the church. For a live stream link of the service, go to fpccr.org. Jason Wayne LaSala, age 56, of Iowa City, excuse me, Jason Wayne Lala, age 56, of Iowa City, died Monday, February 6th, at the Dennis and Donna Oldorf Hospice House of Mercy in Hiawatha. A graveside service will be held at a later date for family and friends. Daniel Richard Lord, age 68, left the chains of this world behind and became perfectly restored in God's perfect time on February 10, 2023, while being cared for at Rehabilitation Center of Lisbon. Dan lived his life by Romans 12, 1-2. 
Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The Iowa Deeded Body Program received Daniel through Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Service. A Time to Remember Dan will be held at 11 a.m. Saturday, June 10th at Cedar Valley Bible Church. A light brunch of Dan's favorite, pancakes, will follow. Sharon K. Wellington, age 84, of Cedar Rapids, passed away Monday, January 23rd, in hospice at West Ridge Care Center in Cedar Rapids. Memorial services will be held at 11 a.m., with visitation beginning one hour prior, Saturday, February 18th, at Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories. A live stream of the funeral service may be accessed on the funeral home website under the obituary for Sharon Wellington. Sharon enjoyed collecting antiques, playing cards with family, bowling, playing the piano, and working out in the yard. She loved spending time with her grandkids. Sharon was a perfectionist. The burial will be in Kyoto, Iowa at a later date. Brad A. Quint, 53, passed away unexpectedly on November 16th. A private family service will be held at a later date. Brad was a self-employed flooring contractor. Karen K. Waddle, or Mama, age 72, passed away peacefully at Westridge Care Center after a short battle with cancer. Karen was an incredibly hard worker, especially during her 20-plus years at Terex. Karen also owned her own restaurant in Texas. Karen liked being surrounded by her Coca-Cola products and a few finer things in life. A celebration of life will be held from 4 to 6 p.m. Saturday, February 25th at Sedlicek Hall, Cottage Grove Place, 2115 First Avenue Southeast in Cedar Rapids. George Harrison Brewer of St. Charles, Illinois, was laid to rest and went to see the face of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the 7th day of February, 2023, at the age of 84 years. George was an Air Force veteran stationed at Dias Air Force Base in Abilene, Texas, where he worked on B-47 bombers and jet engines. George's entrepreneurial spirit led him to be involved in the organization of Naperville Ribfest and the startup of the family yacht charter business, GHP Enterprises Yacht Charters. The yacht charter business allowed George and Robin to travel extensively, which was something they both truly enjoyed. Funeral service and burial for George will be held privately. Janice May Hoopman, born Janice May Winteroud, age 80, of Cedar Rapids, followed, passed away February 7th following a brief illness. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 17th, at Cedar Memorial Westside Chapel. Services will be held at 3 p.m. Saturday, February 18th, at Cedar Memorial Westside Chapel. Interment will follow at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Janice gave 43 years of service to Rockwell Collins. She was in three bowling leagues up to the time of her illness. She loved attending Rose Bowls and listening to Elvis. When she wasn't caring for her family, she enjoyed playing slots and traveling. H. Dean Heber, age 89, of Solon, passed away on Friday, February 3rd, at Hallmark Care Center, Mount Vernon. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, February 16th, at Brosh Chapel in the Ava Center, lower level, located at 100 South Cedar Street in Solon. Celebration of Life service will be 10.30 a.m. Friday, February 17th at Gloria Day Lutheran Church, located at 123 East Market Street, Iowa City. Burial will be in Oakland Cemetery, Solon. Dean served in the U.S. Army during the Korean conflict where he was stationed in Germany. He retired from Alliant Energy after 22 years in 1988. He enjoyed flying kites, vacationing at their summer home at Lake Okoboji, 
and spending time with his family. Maurice K. Van Note, age 87, of Palo, died Tuesday, February 7th at the Keystone Care Center. A celebration of life will be held at 11 a.m. Saturday, February 18th at the Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home in Cedar Rapids with Pastor Bill Reardon officiating. Private burial for family and close friends will follow at the Palo Cemetery. The family will greet friends ahead of the service starting at 9.30 a.m. Early in his career, Maurice was an accountant for Wilson Meatpacking, where he tracked pickled pig's feet. But his love of all things farming soon lured him away. Through the years, he spent countless hours establishing Vleeland Farms and the home of registered Holsteins with rolling cropland. His passion for farming extended to the classroom, where he supported agricultural courses at Kirkwood Community College for future generations, as well as serving as 4-H leader for the Clinton Rough Riders Club, and he was a 66-year member of the Iowa Holstein Association and a 43-year member of the U.S. Southdown Association. Thomas Edward Spear, a retired U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel and Aerospace Engineer, passed away peacefully on November 8, 2022, from cancer. After completing ROTC, he was commissioned as second lieutenant in the Air Force and began his career as an aeronautical engineer at Edglin Air Force Base in Florida. After retiring from Boeing in 2010, Tom joined Oracle Team USA as wing designer for the 34th America's Cup, raced in spectacular 72-foot AC-72 wing sail foiling catamarans. These were the fastest sailboats ever to compete for the America's Cup, reaching speeds of 50 miles per hour, more than twice the speed of the wind, and cost over $10 million to build. In the longest match racing series in AC history, Oracle Teams USA defeated Emirates Team New Zealand 9-8 in September 2013 on San Francisco Bay. A memorial service for Tom will be held April 29, 2023 at the 7th Avenue Presbyterian Church in San Francisco. Mark Allen Shop of Cedar Rapids, it is with great sadness that we announce the passing of Mark, 72, passed away peacefully on February 7th with his wife, Marcia by his side. He was a member of the 1972 Big Ten Championship Baseball team and went on to play a season with the Montreal Expos. Mark was also a veteran of the U.S. Army, serving from 1973 to 1975. Mark loved many things, but most of all, he loved hunting, fishing, and spending time with friends and family. A celebration of life will be held at a later date. And Donald Alvin Stein, age 89, passed away January 8th. He started teaching at Mount Vernon High School in 1967 and went on to direct countless award-winning high school bands, developing the local municipal band, and founded the Eastern Iowa Brass Band. All continue to perform today. He loved being Mr. Stein, band director, and performing with students brought him the most profound happiness. He was also passionate about antiques and collectibles, from wind-up cars to all number of toy trains. There will be a joint memorial for Don and Judy Stein, 1.30 p.m. Saturday, May 20th, at the United Methodist Church in Mount Vernon, Iowa. Turning to the sports page in women's basketball, Rutgers' visit to Iowa just won't be the same. Stringer has retired, so it's like having a new team in the conference, by Jeff Linder of the Gazette in Iowa City. It won't be the same. There won't be the warm ovation for C. Vivian Stringer as she walks out of the Carver Hawkeye Arena Tunnel. A pedestrian Rutgers club comes to town for a 2 p.m. women's basketball meeting with number five Iowa Today. They have a new coach, a lot of new faces, Iowa coach Lisa Bluter said Friday. It's like having a new team in the conference. Stringer, who coached at Iowa for 12 seasons, including a Final Four run in 1993, retired at Rutgers after last season. Her career featured 1,055 wins. Kokas Washington is in charge of the Scarlet Knights now. They're still trying to play very good defense, what Coach Stringer tried to do, Bluter said. 
Iowa, 19-5 overall and 11-2 in the Big Ten, has played through a series of big games since early January. The Hawkeyes came through with key road wins against Michigan and Ohio State, then beat Maryland at home. The Hawkeyes were tied with seven minutes left at number two Indiana on Thursday before bowing 87-78. We had a lot of self-inflicted turnovers. 18 is a lot, Bluter said. We could have taken control of the game early if we would have valued the ball a little more. Still, the Hawkeyes had a chance late on the road against an elite opponent. Rutgers, on the other hand, no longer is an elite opponent. The Scarlet Knights haven't won an NCAA tournament game since 2015, and this year's edition is a 10-15 overall, 4-9 in the league. This game and Wednesday's home date with Wisconsin are absolute musts if Iowa intends to win the Big Ten regular season championship. These next two games are just as important as any other game, Bluter said. They will either go in the L column or on the W column. We have to prepare the same way. The Hawkeyes will game plan for freshman Kayleen Smickley, a six-footer who averages 17 points per game. She's really talented, Bluter said. She can play small forward or power forward. In addition to the 18 turnovers, two factors played against Iowa at Bloomington. First, Monica Cisnano attempted only six shots, she made three, and was outscored by Indiana counterpart Mackenzie Holmes, 24-6. We need to get Monica the ball more, Bluter said. Second was Hannah Stuhlke's 0-for-8 performance at the free throw line. To be fair, Stuhlke is an emerging star. The Cedar Rapids native is a crowd favorite and one of the league's top freshmen. But her foul shooting, 44.3% this season, needs to be fixed if, she's, if she is going to be on the floor late in a close game. I think it got into her head at Indiana. It was a heck of an environment, Bluter said. She missed the first couple and got to her head. My heart aches for Hannah. She takes it really personally. The heart and the work ethic are there. She knows 44% is unacceptable. We know it's unacceptable. We'll get there. And also in sports, Kirkwood's Mule wins 1,000th game. Mike Krasuski, Tara Vanderveer, Gino Arema, Kim Mule. What do those college basketball coaches have in common? All are among only a handful with 1,000 career wins. Kirkwood's Mule achieved that milestone Saturday afternoon in Iowa Falls when the Eagles whipped Ellsworth 98-32. to Mule now has a career record of 1,000-168 to in his 34th season. That's a lot of wins, I guess, Mule said earlier this season. It's a lot of time sitting on the bench, coming to the gym, and having your wife put up with it. And turning to the time machine, a look back at the people, places, and events in eastern Iowa. Abe Lincoln in Iowa, the 16th president, visited Burlington and Council Bluffs by Diane Fannin Langton, correspondent. Today is Abraham Lincoln's birthday and a perfect time to review the 16th president's ties to Iowa. After serving as a volunteer captain during the Black Hawk War in 1832, Lincoln was awarded two Iowa land grants, one in Crawford County in west-central Iowa and the other in Tama County in east-central Iowa. Lincoln didn't visit the properties then, but he did enter certificates of ownership for both tracks at Springfield, Illinois, when he was running for president in 1860. In 1858, Lincoln ran for the U.S. Senate seat from Illinois, challenging incumbent Stephen Douglas. During the campaign, Lincoln visited Burlington, just across the Mississippi River from Illinois, to speak at Grimes Hall on October 9th. The event was recorded in the Monday, October 11th, Burlington Hawkeye. Saturday evening, Grimes Hall was filled to its full capacity by citizens of Burlington and vicinity for the purpose of listening to a speech from Mr. Lincoln, the man who all Republicans desire, and a great many are very certain will succeed, Judge Stephen Douglas, as senator from the state of Illinois. 
So great is the sympathy felt here in the spirited canvas in Illinois, and so high is the opinion entertained of the ability of Mr. Lincoln as a speaker, that a very short notice brought together from 1,200 to 1,500 ladies and gentlemen. In his two-hour speech, the paper reported, Lincoln exceeded even the high expectations. It was a logical discourse, replete with sound argument, clear, concise, and vigorous, earnest, impassioned, and eloquent. Those who heard recognized in him a man fully able to cope with the little giant, Stephen Douglas, anywhere and altogether worthy to succeed him. The newspaper reported Lincoln appeared fresh and vigorous, despite the rigors of campaigning. In this respect, he has altogether the advantage of Douglas, whose voice is cracked and husky, temper soured, and general appearance denoting exhaustion, the paper added. Lincoln stayed all night at the Barrett House in Burlington before heading to Monmouth, Illinois. When he checked into the hotel before his speech, he handed the desk clerk a paper-wrapped package, his only luggage. Please take good care of this, he said. It is my boiled shirt. I will need that this evening. An immense crowd filled the Barrett House rotunda to shake hands with Lincoln. A man named Henry Ewinger, who closely resembled Lincoln, approached Lincoln and said, Mr. Lincoln, I know that you are a greater man than I am, but let me see who is taller. The great man from Illinois smiled, straightened up, and said, Six feet four. And Mr. Ewinger replied, Six feet four here. And when they stood back to back, there was not a hair's breadth between their heights, the Burlington newspaper reported. Lincoln lost that Senate election to Douglas, but two years later, he was elected to the White House. In August 1859, Lincoln stopped in Council Bluffs to check on some town lots he owned. Major General Grenville M. Dodge talked about that visit in a story for the special se section the Gazette produced in February 1909, the 100th anniversary of Lincoln's birth. Dodge said Lincoln bought the properties in the 1850s after successfully representing the Rock Island Railroad when St. Louis sued to stop construction of a railway bridge across the Mississippi River at Davenport. The city argued the bridge would obstruct river navigation. The city lost that lawsuit. Lincoln traveled to Council Bluffs in 1859 by steamboat up the Missouri River for the purpose of seeing the country and looking after his real estate interests, Dodge said. Dodge said Lincoln quizzed him about the region's climate and topography and resources of the country beyond the Missouri River. During Lincoln's visit, Grenville said, some of the citizens of Council Bluffs took him to a high bluff known as Cemetery Hill, just north of the town. From this point could be had a view of the country. He was greatly impressed with the outlook, and the bluff from that time has been known as Lincoln's Hill. Lincoln was elected president November 6, 1860, and inaugurated March 4, 1861. Perhaps as a result of his visit to that bluff, he signed into law the Pacific Railway Act in July 1862, the bill that established a transcontinental railroad. In the Gazette's special section on Lincoln in 1909, Eastern Iowans who'd met Lincoln, long considered the greatest president in the nation's history, recalled that experience. Mrs. W.L. Rose Lee Polly of Cedar Rapids lost her father in the Civil War. Her mother rented out their New York farm and went to work as a nurse in a facility near Washington, which Lincoln visited. I have sat on Lincoln's lap many times and remember his manner and his voice as well as I remember my mother's, she told the Gazette. Henry Geisking of Blairstown said he had dined at the White House with Lincoln. A native of Prussia, he came to the United States as an indentured servant to a distant cousin of Lincoln's in Pennsylvania. He met Lincoln when the president-elect stopped by his cousin's house on the way to his inauguration in 1861. Mrs. L.J. Wood of Cedar Rapids had lived in Decatur, Illinois as a child and recalled Lincoln, who lived about 10 miles away, visiting her father, one of his cousins. When she was little, Cousin Abe, she said, would take me on his shoulder and carry me out in the shade of a tree and would sit and study for hours, and I would sit and watch him. 
He used to call me Angel and Darling, probably because I was sickly. And that brings me to the end of reading the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, February 12th, 2023. I have been your reader, Sharon Faldudo, reading to you from my kitchen table in Coralville. Remember that you can access a recording of this or any other Iris recording at any time on our website, iowaradioreading.org. We welcome your comments, and thank you for listening.